0: So this morning is the fifth talk and conversation on the theme of self and not-self. And I'm aware that there are quite a few people who uh, certainly haven't been to all four of the previous talks. And so I, I also want to acknowledge that the guided meditation did presuppose some of those talks. So it may, if, it, if it felt uh, a little bit hard to get into, I think that's okay. It's not a sign of your lack of aptitude for meditation or something. (laughs) Because it did presuppose some of that. And some of it was, it's not easy. You know, and ideally it's repeated a lot. So I'll bring up the guided meditation later. So what I want to do today are really two things. I want to review briefly some of the main themes especially from last time, but also from the other talks, which are especially about the challenges of this teaching of self and not self and how we understand that teaching, particularly as I explored last time, more traditionally in terms of the classical teachings of the Buddha. And then the uh, second part, Mm -hmm. I want to talk particularly about how we begin to access a sense of not self. And I want to give a a sort of a progressive sequence (coughs) uh, of practice that lets us open more and more to not-self. And it'll correspond in some ways to the guided meditation. And so there can be an experiential basis for it, but we can also understand it more theoretically as well because it's a simple model that makes some sense and can be uh, an overview or a framework for our practice. So those are the two things I want to do. So in the past talks, uh, the first talk I gave an overview. Uh, this was would have been uh, four weeks ago. I gave an overview and particularly focused on how the theme of self and not self can be quite confusing and challenging, that we use the language in very different ways. Uh, sometimes uh, self is a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes we talk about true self big self, self with a capital S, sometimes self is the problem, we talk about getting beyond ego, and just to say that the whole use of these terms can and often is quite confusing. So I was trying to explore the topic in a way which is grounded experientially, and hopefully by the time that we finish this sequence, less confusing, and for people who... Are interested in hearing some of the talks which you haven't heard? They are all on the web at the uh, dharmaseed.org website, and they're usually posted a day or two after the talks. So there would be listed under my name. So if you want to hear those other talks, they they are there. So the first talk talk was an overview, the and I also talked about the using different reference points for studying self, including making use of Western psychology, understanding the uh, cultural conditioning that we all have, probably in somewhat different ways, but a lot that can be common that around uh, having, in this culture, very uh, individualist senses of self. So then the uh, second talk was on uh, what I called the varieties that in which the self appears, because the whole direction of practice, again, I think has this this rhythm of these two aspects. One aspect is to really study the self when it appears, when when I'm calling a thick sense of self appears, meaning when we have a strong sense of could be of um, uh, self-consciousness, self-image, you know, uh, I walk into a room and I feel self-conscious, or I'm giving a public presentation and I have a lot of self-consciousness. Or right? I think oh, everyone's looking at this self here, right? so, And, you know, we know that um, uh, people are more afraid of public speaking than of dying. Or at least of death, maybe not dying. And that's, that's interesting. That, that's actually... Uh, both of them are actually related to uh, fears of the death of self, <laughs> public speaking is related to a kind of fear of having some awful experience of the self, where one is proven to be totally foolish and inept, <laughs> which is a kind of self-death, you know, in a way. It's a small death. So it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and we're, we're very afraid of that. And so we want to first study where the self appears, how it appears. And I talked about different ways that the self appears. Um, I talked about five ways, it appears, and the last four were particularly ways that the self can be, have a strong sense of self. One of them was the, in the uh, cultural conditioning, as I mentioned, that we have a strong cultural conditioning to be, um, I don't know, rugged individuals or self-made men, so to speak, or, or um, people you know, whose lives are focused on the drama of me. <laughs> Or, you know, we have a, have a, can have a sense of everything focusing around what I want or what's important for me or my achievements or my problems and so forth. And again, we can often have that realization that that is strong when we, when we travel to other cultures, which have very different senses of self. And I've, again, I've mentioned how I've had that very strong sense of the cultural conditioning when I've gone to Asia for periods of time, or also when I went to the former Soviet Union, which, in which the sense of self, I think, was suppressed in many, many ways for a long time. When I traveled to, you know, in the early 90s to that area uh, and I came back here, I had a sense of, you know, I had just been with, in a culture with a very different sense of self. So that's one aspect. Then we also have the aspect, what you might call the social I, or the, the sense of I am my role, or I am this, or how people see me, or how I'm seen, or how I think I'm being seen or, and so forth. That's a sense of, there's a sense of self there. There's also a sense of self in, that's often uh, more psychologically rooted, where we've been hurt, or wounded, or have um, certain issues. We can have a thick sense of self, you know, and I gave, I've given different examples, like if I've, let's say, uh, I, I think I gave the example uh, of, if my parents divorced when I was six or eight or ten or something, and I had, as a child, issues of feeling abandoned. could be very real. As an adult, when something triggers, something that feels like that sense of being abandoned as an adult, I will have a thick sense of self-develop. Maybe more unconsciously, but I will start feeling anxious and fear and I will want to have certain experiences and, and you, know, I mean, you know, if my friend or partner goes away for a while, I may be triggered by that. And that's related to psychological issues. So there are a lot of issues that are more psychologically rooted. Last time, I talked about the way that the, uh, uh, the Buddha taught about self and not self, and a lot of that is also in the handout where, where there are a number of quotations. What um, we find in that tradition, I think, is uh, a sense both of skillful uses of the self and of ways to go beyond the sense of self, and that's, that's also been a theme these last weeks, that the self is not simply the enemy or a problem. We sometimes get that sense, um, and that there are very skillful uses of the self. And that this is very much tied to what I'll be talking about, in the, you know, with the second theme of a progressive sequence that goes beyond our usual sense of self. That actually it's very important to have some sense of self, and that can be very skillful. You know, and so, for example, uh, when we are being ethical, we typically think of, uh, I myself, I am being ethical, I am doing good things, I am treating this person fairly, or we, we um, talk about another person maybe and say, I want you to take responsibility for that. And that's in the language of self and other and I. And that can be very skillful. The position ultimately will be that that's not ultimate. But it's actually very helpful or skillful. Or, as I mentioned a few times, the sense of self that's saying, "I'm a meditator," which has the uh, corollary that I should meditate. <laughs> <laughs> if I think I'm a meditator, it's a very good idea for me to meditate, and that's skillful. Or if I think I'm, you know, I want to be an ethical person, or uh, I'm want to be generous to this other person, right? that on on those levels, we can think of ourselves as selves and we act accordingly. And that can be helpful. And so it's not as if we want to instantly get rid of all sense of self. I prefer to see this as a kind of developmental sequence in which we have a, a sense of self and a very healthy sense of self And then we learn how to go even beyond that. And again, this is borne out by a lot of the psychological literature. Some of you know the famous writing by Jack Engler, who's a psychologist who lives on the East Coast, who had the famous uh, finding uh, or famous uh, claim that you have to have a self before you get rid of the self, or you have to have a self before you go beyond the self. And he was pointing to the importance of, basically, healthy development of self as being a prerequisite for more advanced spiritual practice. It's quite interesting. And that if one doesn't have a healthy sense of self, there can be all sorts of problems. And it's something we find sometimes in meditation because people who don't have a healthy sense of self may have a lived experience of, Oh, yes, I know this not-self-teaching you know, and where they may say, there's no self, therefore I don't need to get my financial act together. <laughs> it's quite actually not, not all that uncommon for people to use the teaching of not self as a reason not to grow up. Right? And so there's this interesting teaching that one has to have that sense of self before you really um, experience without a sense of self and that um, a certain healthy and skillful use of of self um, is important. What the Buddha was almost always pointing to was um, both the skillful use of self, but also the problems of grasping. And he actually really saw that a strong sense of self actually only appears when there's some kind of grasping or pushing away of some aspect of experience. Again, some of that can be skillful. For me to grasp that I am a meditator or I am an ethical person has its value. Again, I want to reiterate that because this this teaching is, as I mentioned initially, is is often quite confusing. So we we can um, see really we're invited to see where a sense of self appears and in the more, we might say, the more the teachings leading to understand this experience of anatta, or not-self. And the Buddha did not teach that there's no self. As, as commonly, anatta is translated as no-self, which is incorrect, really. He's really saying that one can experience without a sense of self. Again, there's, there was plenty of usage of there being skillful ways to, be, to work, with a, work with a self. And so he particularly pointed, and this is, follows our guided meditation, he particularly pointed to the, the training that we can be with the constituents of experience potentially without a sense of self. We can be with the body sensations or the other senses, hearing, smelling, and even seeing without a sense of self arising. You know, and, I, and again, our training... Is to see where self arises and to also see if it's possible to relax into the flow without self. And the example I gave last time, I think, is, is a useful one. I talked about being at a sunset. Or we could also say being with food, with, with wonderful food, let's say. Can you just be with the experience, at the, with the sunset? And just really be with the sights and the, um, the feeling, maybe the internal feeling And we know that when we're with that experience, we often have a lot of self-arising. I was thinking today that, uh, you know, we may want to remember that experience so we can have it again. We may think of, oh, I'm going to have to tell so-and-so about my experience of the sunset. And it's amazing that one can actually be with the sunset and there can be a lot of self-activity and rather little experience of the sunset. I think we all know something like that experience with You know, I was thinking of, you know, photographs are wonderful, but they often take us out of the experience. They're a kind of appropriating of present experience for the purpose of showing present experience in the future in some way. So we hopefully have a good experience in the future. remembering the experience which we didn't really have in the present because we were busy <laughs> <laughs> trying to get it for the future. <laughs> right? So so I think there's some self there, right? There's some, and we're encouraged just to, can I just be with the sunset? Can I just be with the different senses? And again, not to say that photography is a problem. It can be a problem. And I think we have a lot of cultural pressure which takes us out of the present moment and out of present experience. That's that's true. And so we're encouraged to be with the senses. The second is, can I be with the feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And can I just be, for example, with an unpleasant sensation in my knee (coughs) without a sense of self arising? Particularly, again, particularly there's a skillful way to have a sense of self there I mentioned. If this is hurting my body, it's skillful to have a sense of self and to say, let me shift my posture. But a lot of times (coughs) we're conditioned to not be able to be with the unpleasant experience, even when it's not causing any problems, right? Or to be with the unpleasant emotion. So part of our training is to be with a sense of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and just be with the flow of that experience and watch when self arises. And again, the Buddha was saying that the sense of self typically arises when there's some grasping or some pushing away of experience. And then when we actually check out our experience, like during the day, where there is not that kind of grasping or pushing away, there may be not much of a sense of self. We may just be doing our thing, maybe just, let's say, working, answering emails you know, and so forth. There may be less of a sense of self when we're encouraged to watch where sense of self gets thick. So we particularly can attend to the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, a major place that a sense of self arises. We can also, the third area was perception. We can see how uh, perceiving something, which depends on recognition and memory, often just takes us off into all sorts of planning, thinking, and so forth, that I can, I can just notice, let's say, someone's um, attractive garment here Wednesday morning. You can, your, your eyes can just casually pick this up right now as we're talking. You can notice an attractive garment, and rather than listening to my wonderful words, <laughs> perhaps, uh, your mind will say, hmm, that's really nice. I think I'd like that. I wonder, I wonder where she got that. I'd like that, but maybe a different color. Hmm. Maybe I'll go shopping after this is over. Do I have time? Yep, I have enough time. Let's work it out. Hmm. I wonder how much it costs. All from the one moment of perception, right? <laughs> so we want, to, we want to track that. You know, we want to watch where self arises with perception. The fourth area is with uh, it's called formation, sankara. It really means thoughts and emotions. We watch, and, and again, the invitation is, can I be with perception, notice when self arises, and increasingly be able to just to be with um, perception or to be with thoughts and emotions and just let it occur. And it's part of what we explore in meditation. We can just be with the thoughts and emotions. So I can be with a thought without it, as it were, proliferating. I can notice a thought. And when the mind gets very quiet, we can sometimes just notice the thought which feels like a little bubble. I can be sitting there fairly quiet and notice, whoop! I'm sorry, sorry to shock. Just like a little little, little bubble or a little boop. And I can, I can have the sense, oh yeah, that was the beginning of my financial reflections. But it just was like the, like a seed or like a little bubble, and it just occurs. So we're invited to track all of this. We're to also notice the, the last area is consciousness. Just to notice, um, can there be consciousness and a knower without thinking that's me? Just 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 that awareness, and so we are increasingly invited. This is part of the sequence, and really moving to the second area there's a sequence of training that increasingly takes us uh, beyond the rigid sense of self. And this is something we can particularly explore in meditation and bring out into daily life. We can increasingly uh, stabilize something in meditation and bring out into daily life. But I've also, as I've mentioned a number of times, I think there's a lot of way, there are a lot of ways that we can have a sense of not-self, no th- thick sense of self, Sort of intervening experience in very ordinary, um, very ordinary experiences, like when we're really immersed in activities. We could, you know, it's probably most obvious when we're doing something we love. It could be maybe playing music, or being in nature, or being with people who are close to us. And there might be a total sense of flow, you know, of being with a kind of a flow experience where there's very little self-consciousness, very little sense of self, we're just totally immersed in something. I think that also gives us a very good sense. And as I mentioned last time, we often think that those kinds of experiences without a thick sense of self are the most wonderful experiences of our lives, which is interesting, right? You know, what's most wonderful is when we actually don't have that self-consciousness. It can feel sometimes like a burden, right? And we love the times when we transcend it in various ways, particularly when we connect. We both transcend and we connect with something deeper or more wonderful. And so the meditative sequence goes something like this. And this is, this is interesting for me because it's really a sequence of training. And I, again, I'm going to give it to you, and it follows somewhat the, the uh, sequence given in the guided meditation because it suggests a sequence of training to increasingly become more familiar with experience beyond a rigid or thick sense of self, which is a really a main aim of our practice and our training. You know, and it, again, it's complicated, and it's complicated to bring it out into daily life and work and all that we do, but it's, it's really, I think, what this is pointing to. And probably, I think, in all of the different kinds of work that we might do or professions, uh, all the parts of our lives, some of the most valued, if not the most valued, experiences that we have. You know, let's say as an artist, as a parent, as a, a friend, as being, in, being on the earth. Um, a lot of those experiences, as, as an athlete, a lot of those experiences that are most valued seem to be where we are performing or being so full that there's no sense of self. We're just fully with life, really. That's interesting. So this is a progression in a meditative way that takes us in that direction. So first, we need really to, uh, in in the meditative context, we need to develop uh, stability of mind. And so this, if we were working with the guided meditation on our own, we'd first want to stabilize. And the sequence that I'm going to suggest requires at each level that we stabilize before we go on further. And it's fine just to simply be where we are. But I'm going to give you a sequence that, is, that sort of takes us most of the way. But we can, And so sometimes we will stabilize, maybe like as in the guided meditation, we'll stabilize for two seconds, right? And to stabilize for longer takes a lot more practice, a lot more development, okay? But, but knowing that we... You know, you may have had in that, the last part of the guided meditation where I asked you, okay, just be aware without focusing on anything, Maybe, how many of you had something, at least for a second or two, where you connected with that? So that's, that's initial stabilization, <laughs> okay? So we, um, we want first, though, we, we want to stabilize first with the mind getting more quiet and still. A lot of this deeper practice does take some degree of concentration. And so regular practice is quite important, if we want to go further with this, to really stabilize our attention to be able to uh, be with experience without the thought process taking over. It's not easy in this culture, right? Because thought is so much encouraged or you know, we have so much stimulation you know, in all sorts of ways, as we know. And so the first step is really stabilize attention, develop regular meditation, develop concentration, live ethically. Have your ethical act together, so there's not so much uh, tumult in the mind because of how one lives and so forth. So that's the first step. Then we can, maybe a second step in the sequence, is to begin noticing. And it really starts with the first step as well. Start noticing when the thick sets of self is there. And this is kind of a lifelong pursuit, really. Notice when a thick sense of self appears. It's not that the self is bad, we have to get rid of it. It's just to start noticing. So there's so much that we can do with mindfulness. Really just noticing when that sense of self appears in all the different ways that I've mentioned. You know, and it's helpful to see that, that there are different ways the self appears. Again, through liking, disliking, reaction, self-image, <coughs> self-consciousness maybe something we recognize as more psychological, some area where there's just some hurt or confusion or vulnerability, you know, just to notice that and to really notice uh, how these are. Studying, you know, studying the self. A famous statement by uh, the great Zen teacher uh, Dogen who said, to study Buddhism is to study the self. It's really what we do. He also then said, to study the self is to forget the self. <laughs> and he said, to forget the self is to be informed by the 10,000 things. <laughs> so it's kind of, that's, also, that's a sequence which parallels what I'm talking about. We study the self. We have to really study it a lot. We have to become experts on all the patterns of self that we have. Notice the patterns. Look out particularly for what what is repetitive. Notice what kind of reactions typically lead to a strong sense of self. All sorts of ways we could study. We could talk about studying the self. And then we begin to open further to experiences beyond self. One of them would be, this is maybe a a third step, although I think all of these are somewhat interwoven. A third step would be being with the direct experience initially in meditation, maybe, and then increasingly uh, outside of meditation, uh, of the senses, of those five areas, being able to be with more direct experience of sensations, of feeling tone, of thoughts and emotions, and just be able to, in meditation initially, just stay and have increasingly be able to be with those without a lot of self-arising so that we can experience... Oh, there's the little arising of self for five seconds, which doesn't like the feeling in my shoulder, okay, as I sit. And then I just say, okay, relax, Donald, just back to the shoulder. <laughs> you know, and then we stay with it, you know, we just stay with the, the flow of sensations. So we can, we can continually uh, train in that. That's really a lot, that's, that's actually the heart of our meditation practice, isn't it? It's really staying with all the constituents of experience, watching when the self arises, Noticing it and, and coming back to direct experience, coming back to the breath. The mind goes off, thinks about something for five minutes, we come back. And then we stay with the breath and we stay increasingly, have increasingly a sense of, of going beyond uh, experience being controlled by the self. This can be very, uh, very revealing. Now, it's still to say there's still a sense of self as knower, as the one who attends. So we haven't got rid of all sense of self, but what we might say is this process is thinning the self. So there's still a sense of self as the meditator, as the focuser, you see? And the progressive steps from now will thin out the self further. They'll remove, as it were, a support for the self until there is no support. That's the direction that we followed in the guided meditation. And so we, we work with... Um, for example, in just attending to the breath, there's still a self that's focusing, that's attending, that's the meditator that needs to train to get better and so forth. And that's, that's fine. That's a skillful use of self, we might say, to attend. But there's still that sense of self. There's a sense of division between knower and known. It's not, they're not the same, right? And that's skillful. And then um, in the guided meditation, we went into what we call choiceless awareness, which removes one support. So we are, now, we are watching experience, and this takes more concentration to do, so it probably was hard for many of us to stay with that. And it's something which can develop and we can practice it, particularly if we uh, practice more, and sometimes uh, retreat practice is helpful to really have that develop more fully. But in this case, we don't, Have the mind controlling what we focus on, as with the breath or something else, but we start letting the focus be on whatever is predominant, like that image of being with the river, and we're just. My job is just to attend to the river as it's appearing right in right in front of me, and I don't determine what's in the river. So that removes one of the supports for. Uh, Of self, that which is deciding what to focus on. Okay, and so it actually, when we experience choiceless awareness, particularly when the mind gets quiet, it can actually feel like a sense of there's not much self there. You know, experience is just happening by itself, and we, when we open to that, we have a sense of hmm. I'm not as much in control of my experience as I thought I was. Hmm, interesting. And we can just stay with that for a period of time. And then I, um, I took away one further support in opening the eyes. You know, in, in one sense, it's not really um, doing anything further in the sense of the uh, um, choosing which experience to focus on. But I, I, I found that practically speaking to take the support of having the eyes closed and open the eyes is significant because there's so much connection between our eyes and focusing on objects, perceiving, developing a sense of self. <coughs> it's one of the reasons that sometimes we can have a lot of sense of flow with our eyes closed but once we open our eyes we're, it's harder. And so there's a very interesting sequence where we first develop more stability with the eyes um, closed. And then another step is to start opening the eyes and letting there be choiceless awareness where we're not just focusing on this, focusing on that. That's not easy. You know, I found that takes... You know, all of these, if we were... All of these, if we were doing these a lot, can take time. Remember, it's a step-by-step sequence. interested in at least giving you the map of the big picture. So actually, learning how to have the eyes open and not fixating on things is not very easy. And, it really, and it's not even very easy to have this choiceless awareness with eyes closed really be, be flowing. And then the last piece was to remove even that, that more subtle aspect of self, which is just trying to be aware. And this is interesting, you know, that this is actually in the classical text, this movement to what we might call a kind of pure awareness without a sense of self or other or knower and known is actually connected with what is is understood to be the sacred or nibbana, a kind of pure awareness in which there's no attempt even to try to be aware. And my hope was that there was some glimpse of that in that, when I clapped a few times. How many had some glimpse of that? You know, In some of the traditions, it's said that we can access that sometimes when we're startled or when we yawn. You know, imagine that there's some monasteries where people just yawn <laughs> you know, as a way to access deeper states of consciousness. It's kind of interesting. So I don't know if they undergo sleep deprivation in order to get there, but in any case... Do you, have that sense, do you have that sense, at least conceptually, that even choiceless awareness involves the intention to pay attention to the flow right in front of me? And, then, and there's still some division of knower and known. Do you get that? Even if you've let out a lot of the usual supports, which is that I will control this, I will focus on this, and you let out, and then you remove even that division of knower and known and you just go to just a moment of awareness without a sense of knower or known self and other, potentially opening up to that. And that is, uh, again, I think that is connected with one of the deeper states. And we uh, can increasingly access that. And in all, as with all of these steps, we stabilize maybe first in meditation. At each of these, probably I've mentioned at least four or five different steps, maybe five steps. We stabilize, and then we go on to the next, and increasingly, and then and then we stabilize in meditation. Then we bring it back to daily life. So, not easy. Um, this last step is really uh, again. I think it's connected with something like a kind of pure awareness, which is pointed to by the Buddha at times, as being the direction of practice in which there's a deep, pure awareness that is also, um, can be touched and then increasingly brought into everyday life, which is connected with freedom. It's most explicitly connected with with no sense of grasping or pushing away of anything. We could say it's also a, a total letting go and yet being present, and it also, we might say, access is the deepest sense of love and wisdom, of interconnection and, and love. That's the claim in many of these texts. And then, when we've stabilized there, we just connect with the flow of life, with ordinary experience, as in that sense of the Zen teaching, where it said, when I first was practicing, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. At the depth of my practice, mountains were no longer mountains and rivers were no longer rivers. But then when I had full maturity, mountains were once again mountains and rivers were once again rivers. So I hope that clarifies everything. <laughs> okay. Okay. So maybe I'll just. There's a lot there. There's a lot there we could unpack. But the. But but I hope it's useful to have this sense of a sequence that we can actually train in, and just go to wherever our next step is. That's all that we ask. But that is potential. That there is potential to traverse the entire path, and have that be increasingly there, in one's uh, everyday life. Okay. So, I'll end with a reading from the Buddha, which I think is, I don't know if it's, I think it's one of our, one of those in our list. Oh, I'll I'll end with two quotations. One is from a great teacher, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was a a teacher of non-dual spirituality in India, and this is what he said. Meditation is a deliberate attempt to pierce into higher states of consciousness and finally go beyond them. The art of meditation is the art of shifting the focus of attention to ever subtler levels, without losing one's grip on the levels left behind. Quite important. So you still can function in the world and go to the grocery store and they ask you for your credit card and... it works. (laughs) You know, it's important. The final stage of meditation is reached when the sense of identity goes beyond. Beyond I am so-and-so. Beyond so am I. Beyond the I am the witness only. Beyond there is. Beyond all ideas. Into the impersonally personal pure being. But you must be energetic when you take to meditation. (laughs) So then the last is from the Buddha. He says, Well then, This is how the training should be done. Concerning the body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine, and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine, and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. It's another way of saying what I think we've been pointing to. And so, again, the way to have this be, uh, I think, down-to-earth and practical is to see the two phases or the two aspects. One of them is just noting self when it appears continually. Studying the self. (coughs) Continually looking into how the self appears. And then also looking into, increasingly, how one might experience without a sense of self in meditation, you know, in those very ordinary activities I mentioned, and continually explore that as well. And then as I mentioned, have mentioned the previous times, I think because this is all sometimes challenging, and actually even sometimes hard, and sometimes um, there can be even some fear, at the uh, experience of not-self, it's also very important to hold all of this with loving-kindness and compassion. And to continue with those practices. Compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. And loving-kindness. And to really have this mix of all of these practices, I think, is really uh, quite important. So Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you kindly. We're just at about time. And I'm trying to see... How many of you would, would be okay with staying four or five more minutes? And how many of you have to leave right now? A few of you. Hey, why don't we take four or five more minutes? If you want to leave, that's, that's fine right now. We'll take one or, two, one or two questions or comments. Please, uh, Scott. The, the fear uh, element, I, actually, I'm, I was glad that you mentioned that, because I think, speaking for myself, and I, I guess this applies to many people, that final step yeah. is fraught, is frightening. At this yeah. loss, uh, one wants to ask, well, who's who's going to manage things then? Yeah. And you started to address it. You, you suggested that loving kindness toward the oneself. Yeah is it mitigates that yeah. problem. But I, I would be interested in hearing more about it. Yeah, so the, it's, a, it's a very important question about the, the way that in this process, and maybe you maybe can look in more detail at this um, when I come back in two weeks, that, that when we explore the self and open up to experiencing without a sense of self, um, the question really was about the final moving beyond the sense of self and arousing fear. But I think actually there can be anxiety and fear at, all along the way, at every, every, every stage. I know that personally. That, uh, for example, um, I think I was, um, I was raised and conditioned somewhat to control experience. And so for me, just to let go and meditate sometimes involved anxiety. Where I, I came to see how I wa- wanted to kind of control experience. I could actually see how there was sometimes anxiety to have, to be openly facing experience without controlling it. Not, not in any particular great higher state, but just in very ordinary experience. I explored this, especially meditating, but just to actually be open to whatever was happening. There was some conditioning to want to control. So where we have this desire to control uh, the, there will be some anxiety, it can be beneath the surface, or it will only sometimes surface at certain moments. But as we explore this, there, at every step of that sequence, there can be anxiety, you know, with certain stimuli. You know, or for example, um, uh, I think I, I mentioned, because we, we looked, I think we looked at this, what, two times ago? We looked in a little more depth at, at the issue of fear or anxiety. I don't know, were, you, were you there at that time? Yeah, and I told a story of um, um, one of my early retreats where I would be watching self, and I um, had a self image of being a good meditator. Remember that story? And I would experience myself. I got. I I was at a retreat and I got sick, and I was in in my mind. I was in my like uh, twenties, like middle twenties then. And I was um, sitting there, and for, in my mind, to be a good meditator meant that I would not get sick. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of nuts, but it's what I was going on, you know. And, or that I would not sniffle, that I would not sniff, sniffle and make a lot of sounds and noises. And so I would watch self-appearing, and there was a lot of fear around that, you know, just to, because I could not control what was going on. And again, you may say, well... About time you learn that. <laughs> but uh, in any case, there was fear there. And there could also be um, really any of these stages, to the extent that we have a self who wants to control and have that be the main way that we orient and experience, there will be some anxiety that arises. But, you know, you're setting aside the question of self-image being yeah. challenged, it's like suddenly... It's almost like a neurological event. It's, it's disorientation. It's like driving at a high speed without your hands on the wheel. Yeah, yeah. So, so the comment about it being disorienting. So, yeah, it is a gradual process. It really helps to have guidance, a lot of guidance along this way, because and, and to have different kinds of supports. It, it helps very much in this to be able to compare notes with other people, see what they're experiencing, to know that one is not uniquely... Uh, disoriented. That one is communally disoriented, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> or one is one is di- disoriented in ways that other people experience, and therefore one can be reassured that one's disorientation is a sign of progress. <laughs> I'm being a little humorous, but uh, but it's actually helpful, right? You know, we can actually uh, anyway. So that's some of. So, all, all along the way, there can be different ways that we get disoriented. Self-image, just ex, you know, giving up some further degree of control, being with experience, uh, being a meditator, and then, you know, even bringing it out into daily life. So, it, it's a gradual process. I think it's important to really stabilize at each of the steps that I was outlining before you try to go on to the other with a lot of depth. Because otherwise, I think it'll, it'll be harder. You know, for example, it helps to have a significant amount of concentration and awareness to do any of this. You know, because we have to watch the mind that gets disoriented, that says, hey, you know, could, you know, that can be anxious or be a little fearful or freaked out or whatever. So it's, a, it's actually a very important question, maybe, because we could actually see how some sense of anxiety could arise at, at every step of the way. And that we, so the inner practices are good, but also that's where community comes in, teachers and so forth. Okay, so I think that we'll have to have that one question, very good one be there. Let me just end, we'll just end by, again, I'll recommend those two forms of practice, noticing self and then opening up to uh, experience without that strong sense of self, continue with that. I think we'll continue with this theme in two weeks and um, try to take it uh, uh, in a continual, continued way, maybe come back to some further themes like anxiety, like uh, how to use the self skillfully. So let's make this, uh, may our practice, may our time together be of benefit to others and to ourselves. Thank you. Thanks very much. For- Thank you for listening.